Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 183, recorded for the week of September 21st, 2022. The Cloud Pod competes for the Google Cloud Fly Cup. Good evening, Jonathan and Ryan. Hey, Justin. Hey there. Yeah, another fantastic week. Uh, we have lots of news, and uh, we apologize for any wind you might hear in Ryan's feed. He's coming from an undisclosed location in a wind tunnel uh, for tonight's show. So uh, apologies for our listeners who hear us a little bit of wind in the background <laughs> this time around. In retrospect, a wind tunnel was the worst choice to choose to record, but here we are. Yeah, here we go. That's how it works. It's usually full of hot air anyway, so. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> same old, same old. <laughs> Just another episode. All right, well, let's get into the news this week. We have quite a bit to get through. Uh, Vagrant, uh, HashiCorp Vagrant 2.3 is released uh, and introduces the new Go runtime. Uh, we previously talked here on the show about uh, HashiCorp's uh, version, a vision for Vagrant 3.0. Uh, and so this is their effort to move from Ruby to Go. Uh, this is the very first release. That's why we're talking about today. And with the 2.3 release, you get Vagrant, uh, the Ruby version, and Vagrant-Go executables. And this gives you the ability to try the Go version while not fully moving away from Ruby quite yet. Uh, although I will uh, give you the caveat, there are lots of limitations here, including no Windows support and no Puppet or Chef support, which is probably the two main things I've uh, used Vagrant for in the past, so not great for those people, but uh, overall, good to see if you're a developer of plugins, things like that, to start testing those out on the new Vagrant Go uh, version. Yeah, I mean, managing dependencies in the Ruby ecosystem has been difficult for a long time, so it totally makes sense why they're making this move, and I'm sure that functionality will come over time. Agreed. All right, well, AWS uh, news this week. AWS Enterprise Support is now letting you add on incident detection and response. Uh, this is a way to hopefully get maybe a little bit more ROI out of your AWS Enterprise Support. Uh, the GA of Incident Detection and Response uh, provides proactive monitoring and incident management for your workload. AWS Incident Detection and Response leverages proven operational enhanced monitoring and incident management capabilities used by internal AWS teams and externally by AWS managed services. AWS Incident Managers continuously monitor your workloads, detect critical incidents, and engage you on a call bridge with the right AWS experts to accelerate the recovery of your workload. All incidents are managed with the highest level of severity and escalation, and AWS remains engaged until the issue is fixed. Uh, available to AWS Enterprise Support customers for an additional fee, which is a 2% uplift over your aggregated AWS usage with a minimum of $7,000. And I mean, 2% is not a lot of money for an SRE team, so uh, this might be a good deal for a lot of people. Right? This is fantastic. I mean, everyone just always blames AWS, no matter if it is their code anyway, so may as well make them answer all the, the incidents. I love it. <laughs> you think this is uh, mostly... ML driven, or are they actually incident managers continuously monitoring our workloads? I assume there's a whole lot of automation going into this, not not uh, fleets of people. I mean, it's only going to be as good as the signal you feed it, right? Mm. Well, neat though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I assume they're gonna, they do a full review. I assume they they take a hard look at your infrastructure. They make sure you're you know designed for failure, <laughs> all those things that they would want. Otherwise, you know, you're just dealing with. Fr- uh, very fragile, bitter, uh, brittle applications. Maybe bitter too. But uh, you know, <laughs> I think it's uh, just a matter of uh, you know maybe this is a good experiment for some companies to try out, and I'm excited to see or hear how this works for some out there. 
All right. Amazon RDS Proxy, which we talked about when it came out originally, uh, now supports RDS for SQL Server, uh, which I think I literally said when they announced this feature, I'm like, man, if it only supported SQL Server, and now it does. Of course, I'm not working on AWS anymore, so that's unfortunate. But uh, <laughs> if I was, I'd be really happy right now. Uh, the Amazon RDS Proxy sits between your applications and the database to pool and share established database connections, improving database efficiency and application scalability. Uh, for Amazon, for RDS SQL Server multi-AZ databases, RDS Proxy automatically connects to the standby database in the event of a database failure, persevering, uh, preserving connections from applications and helping reduce failover times by up to 83%. Yeah, this is a fantastic feature. Um, you know, like it's... it. This is one of the harder harder parts of you know managing an application scale and scaling out and, and dealing with um, you know any kind of failure. So having this layer of abstraction in the middle, managing that is really great. I, did we ever get to the bottom of whether this was an additional cost or is this just adding on or something built into the RDS service itself? I mean, I think it did have an extra cost. Um, I'm going to go to it real quick. But uh, yeah, so the proxy, you pay for uh, basically a penny per ACU hour uh, with a minimum charge of eight ACUs for Aurora. And provision distances, you pay basically the same amount of money per vCPU hour uh, with a minimum of two vCPUs. Uh, there is no charge for the endpoint itself, but the proxy does have a charge. All right. I mean, that's not a huge lift. And so like for your highly critical workloads, you want to enable that. And then everything else, you probably still want to design in a fault tolerant way, it's cool. Yeah, it's neat. I wonder if they'll will have a extra functionality like um, sort of proxying to multiple SQL servers or multiple sources behind the proxy, but make it look like a single source in you know, to the application. And kind of go off into all these other useful uh, cases. You know, if you're doing a migration, for example, you, you may want just one interface to talk to for the app, but have data in different places on the back end and sort of hide the uh, hide how the sausage is made, so to speak. You make multi-joins across multiple databases through the proxy, like that kind of thing? Yeah. That would be interesting. Kind of like yeah. uh, linked servers, but without having to do linked servers. As long as it works and I don't have to troubleshoot why it doesn't work, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> kind of makes me wonder what happened to the, um, the Babelfish translator for SQL Server to uh, Aurora. Kind it's of, still out there. I mean, it's it's open source, um, but yeah, I haven't seen a lot of talk about it for sure. No big, no big wow stories. We just saved seven million dollars a year by moving to this. So, I don't know if you've ever tried to get an engineering team to switch database engines. Like even interjecting this in the middle, we're probably about three years out from anyone actually putting a real workload on it. <laughs> yeah, I just I just want to look at the Babelfish website. So it looks like. Uh, 2.11 was just released in April, so they've uh, they continued to get releases, continuing to do stuff with it. So it'd be nice if it was a, a really great solution that worked amazingly, because you could save a lot of Microsoft monies with that solution. Yeah, I still want to. You know, I've, I I haven't met anyone who's convinced a business to to switch to it, to try it, to even POC it out. Like it is really funny the apprehension that you you hear on this is is pretty funny. But again, a lot of the other workloads that are on SQL Server are things that Babelfish isn't going to save you. Like, I don't think there's, you know, you still can't do stored procedures and that sort of thing. So, Agreed. Well, uh, starting October 11th, ACM public certificates will be issued from one of the multiple intermediate CAs that AWS manages. 
Uh, public certificates that you request through ACM are obtained from the Amazon Trust Service, which is a public certificate authority that Amazon manages. Like other public CAs, Amazon Trust Services CA have a structured trust hierarchy. The public certificate issued to you, also known as the LEAF certificate, can chain to one or more intermediate CAs and then to the Amazon Trust Service root CA. The Amazon Trust Service root CA is trusted by default by most operating systems. Now, with the new change, ACM will be issued from one of the multiple intermediate CAs that Amazon manages, and these intermediate CA chains uh, to an existing Amazon Trust Services root CA. With this change, lease certificates issued to you will be signed by a different intermediate CA. And before this change, Amazon maintained a limited number of intermediate CA and issued and renewed certificates from the same intermediate CA for all requests. This change allows AWS to create more resilient and agile certificate infrastructure that will help us to respond more quickly to future requirements. And this change also presents an opportunity to correct a known issue related to delayed revocation of subordinate CA and help minimize the scope of impact for new risks that might emerge in the future. Yeah, you know, I think it's quite a few reasons for why that makes a lot of sense. One is is this the scalability of managing uh, the CA and um, you know the, the millions of certificates and the certificate revocation list uh, in a single in a single system. Um, so by scaling it out horizontally, I mean it's, it's sort of each thing becomes a little bit more sustainable and scalable. The other thing is. Um, Imagine if one of those. Imagine if that uh, CA was compromised, and every single certificate had to be revoked. It would be uh, a complete disaster. So I think it's also a bit of risk mitigation around um, reducing blast radius in case anything were to happen with one of those CAs. I mean, I don't. I don't. How many certificates do you think ACM has issued in its lifetime? I mean, you're talking talking about billions, billions. billions. And so, you know, even dividing it up between you know ten thousand CAs, it's still a big blast radius, no matter what you do. It is. I mean, that's why we're starting to see, you know, max age on certificates come down and down and down. It's that same mitigation, right? Because it's, it's the long-lived certs, and then that renewal of that cert, that's a pain. And if your client doesn't have that CA listed in its trust list, like, ooh, what a nightmare. Totally agree. I love I love fighting intermediate 3A certificate issues, though. So I hope I hope Amazon continues to make it easy for me, because if I start installing intermediate CAs, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's move on to uh, Outposts. Uh, AWS is announcing direct VPC routing for AWS Outposts. This enables you to connect to Outpost racks and on-premise networks using simplified IP address management techniques. Uh, direct VPC routing automatically advertises the VPC subnet CIDR to an on-premise network, and this enables you to use the private IP address of resources in your VPC when communicating with your on-premise network. Furthermore, you can enable direct VPC routing using a self-serve process without needing to reach out to AWS support. Uh, I didn't know this was a limitation, but man, this one would have sucked. It was actually one of, when um, uh, EKS and ECS Anywhere were announced, that was my first question is, well, what are you going to do about networking? How can I get to my VPC resources from, from an on-prem cluster? And although this doesn't quite solve that yet, it, it does solve it for Outposts at least, so maybe maybe uh, they'll extend it to any ECS or EKS cluster on-prem as well. Can you not treat this just like a normal VPC and, and connect via over like a direct connect setup or, or peering? Like I thought this was more of like a static route versus a BGP advertisement route between those two things. So they do say this advertises and self-managed. So I assume it's BGP, but it's inside your network. Um, I think previously before this, you had to go through an ingress controller through like the, the control plane on, uh, on AWS, et cetera, through a load balancer. So I think this just simplifies a lot of the, the infrastructure components. Yeah, this would be a huge edge case. Or, I mean, a huge gotcha. Yep. 
Yeah, sure. uh, definitely. Oh, you know, then you wonder why the pricing is so crazy for Outpost. You're like, wait, wait. Now, not only am I on my own network, and now paying for this to get hairpinned out of my own router back to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's probably how it worked before, which is kind of ugly. Yeah. Um, so this is a, this is a much better uh, improvement. But uh, you know, the, what this does enable is our next feature, uh, which is you can now route internally. Uh, you can now, oh, since you now can route internally, you can now also get local clusters for EKS on Outpost, meaning you can deploy your EKS cluster entirely on Outpost, both the Kubernetes control plane and the nodes themselves. Of course, EKS is uh, Amazon's managed Kubernetes service uh, that you can run on Outpost. Prior to this, you would create an EKS cluster in the AWS cloud, provision nodes on Outpost, and ensure you hack activity. But in AWS world, everything fails, and this could result in a disconnect between the outpost and the control plane, resulting in service issues if you needed to scale up or uh, scale out your infrastructure. And so uh, now with this, you can now deploy the whole thing on-premise and no longer require the console to be available to handle basic operations. So all the advantage of someone else running your you know, API layer, but then none of the risk mitigation of that. <laughs> this has exactly. compliance written all over it. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's, it's probably a small edge case, but you know, if you have you know your MPLS circuit goes down to AWS or whatever connectivity method you're doing, and you can't connect to your cluster, it does seem like a limitation of outposts uh, if it can't get to the mothership. Yeah, massively distributed system running on a single box in a single rack. Well, I mean, it's it's just it's just changes to the workloads. Your workloads would you know have whatever connectivity that the failure would allow, you know, and so like it is sort of this interesting, like. Yeah, I I wonder what the the configurations of this are because you know ideally you wouldn't want to move this off. This is a something that you want to keep managed, which is the advantage of a managed service. But I'm sure there's edge cases where they need it for compliance or outward network access. You know, like as far as their network audit, those kinds of things. But yeah, as long as I don't have to set it up. Exactly. As long as you don't have to set it up, that's the key thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, let's move to GCP. Uh, and I'm going to now channel my best salesperson uh, voice. Uh, hurry, hurry, hurry. This deal won't last forever, folks. You can get no cost to you, 90 days free of Google Cloud Spanner, a fully managed relational database created by Google that provides the highest levels of consistency and available at any scale. Now for a limited time. Go, go, go. I want the audience just to imagine Jonathan and, and I as those those flailing arm men in the background. Oh, that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, that would be really yeah. great, yeah. But wait, I want more. <laughs> Does it include shipping and handling, or is that extra? <laughs> that, is, that is extra for a low, low cost of five easy payments of nineteen ninety nine for shipping. You can get your own spanner and your own data center. There you go. <laughs> uh, this is great. If you've been meaning to try this spanner and uh, you want to check this out, you can get it for free to play around with it. And then that leads into our next story, which you can play with the new fine-grade access controls for Cloud Spanner which is, of course, a new way to protect your data in Cloud Spanner. Uh, as Spanner has uh, rolled out, they've provided you many ways to authenticate, including IAM permissions around roles, IAM principles, and policies. But for some applications like Ledger apps, analytics users, and service accounts, you maybe wanted that to be a little bit more a little bit more bespoke, uh, a little bit more finely grained. And so now they're supporting four types of privileges, including select, insert, update, and deletes. And those can be assigned to tables, uh, and select, insert, and updates can be applied to tables or the columns. Database roles are collections of those privileges. And for example, you have a role called inventory admin that has the select and insert privileges on an inventory transactions table and select, insert, and update, and delete privileges on the products table. Uh, to give you an example of how you might use this fine-grained access control, all available to you. Bye, bye, bye now for free for 90 days. 
I mean, these are great things to set up, you know, like I'm, I'm all for this and it's, it's always that, you know, after you've rolled out the workload and you're using these things where it's like controlling of different layers comes into it. So it's, it's hard to account for everything in the design, especially as your workload changes and grows over time. So these are fantastic things to add and makes it a, much, a lot more usable, especially as your application matures. Yeah, I, I, it's also fun to troubleshoot when you need all of a sudden realize like, oh yeah, I can't, I can't access that table I just created in my release because I forgot to uh, update the permissions. So uh, something to check in your linter for sure. Well, Google Database Migration Service now supports Google Alloy DB uh, in preview, which performs four times faster than your open source PostgreSQL for transactional performance and up to 100 times faster for analytics queries. A full PostgreSQL compatibility makes it easy to take advantage of this technology today, and they want you to see that with the new database migration capability, allowing you to move from that pesky Cloud SQL Postgres right to Alloy DB or from an on-prem PostgreSQL solution. That's impressive, stats-wise. I wonder, I wonder if it's... Uh... That's the edge case, or if that's kind of an average over many many cases. Uh, I mean, we had a previous episode where we talked all about Alloy DB and its uh, amazing performance. You might have missed that episode because you. I was busy. there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't recall if you were there or not, but uh, yeah, it's supposed to be really fast and super quick. <laughs> I've not tested it yet, but uh, I am sort of intrigued by it, the concept of basically Google going after Aurora in this way. I'm looking forward to a future MySQL version, perhaps. It would be fun to do, yeah, a comparison on a workload just to see. Cool. All right, moving to our next storage. Apparently, they had the uh, Storage Innovation Day. <clears throat> now, uh, I will, I'm going to tell you these three innovations, and I will tell you uh, what I think at the end. Uh, so, first up is the announcement of Google Cloud Hyperdisk, the next generation of persistent disk, bringing you the ability to easily and dynamically tune the performance of your block storage to your workload. With Hyperdisk, you can provision IOPS and throughput independent for applications and adapt to changing application performance needs over time. Then they launched the File Store Enterprise Multi-Share for GKE, which enables admins to seamlessly create file store instance and carve out portions of the storage to be used simultaneously across one or thousands of GKE clusters, and also offers non-disruptive storage upgrades in the background with GKEs running and a 99.99% regional storage availability SLA. And then finally, they gave you... Uh, Make things even easier for you today with the release of Auto Class for cloud storage, which automatically moves objects based on the last access time by policy to colder or warmer storage classes. And like I, I tell you guys, I feel like a kid again at reInvent 2016, saying this is amazing, Andy. <laughs> uh, but uh, now it's here for you for Google. So thank you, Google, for catching up to AWS. Is there such a thing as old versions? <laughs> <laughs> me too. And, us too announcements, as I like to call them. Not me too, but yeah. us too. Us too. Yeah. Us too. I mean, that I, you know, any cloud storage that will move my objects around to this, the the cheapest storage based on rules I define. Like, I'm a huge fan of that, just because you know, it's. I love being able to set those things and take advantage of the cost savings at different tiers, but it's also. When you get into the billions of object scale, the the idea of managing that just becomes nightmarish. And so, it's really nice to have these comparisons or these features that make you know running on Amazon or Google and even Azure, you know, comparatively the same. I love it. Yeah, you said cost savings. Is, yeah. that, is that your experience, Ryan? <laughs> oh no, 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 no. That's it's quite the opposite. The intention is cost savings. <laughs> 
I'm searching for if there's any pricing for like transition between classes for this, but the uh, the link to the auto classes not very helpful from the dock. Yeah, it's very 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 lightweight. Um, yeah, and that's why. But you know, there's a 75 minute video you can watch that maybe gives you some more detail. Oh, good. Just what I wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that great? I know it's so nice. Thanks. Thanks for that. <laughs> Well, if uh, you know you snickered under your breath when people said Deep Racer uh, and all of the deep things at, at AWS, and you thought to yourself, man, it's a stupid name, uh, I'm going to tell you today it's time to hold on to your tasty beverage. Because <laughs> uh, if you'd like to take your cloud skills to the new heights on Google Cloud, Google is announcing the Google Cloud Fly Cup Challenge. Created in partnership with the Drone Racing League and taking place at Google Next 22 to usher in the new era of tech-driven sports. Using the DRL, DRL race data and Google Cloud Analytics tools, developers of any skill level will be able to predict race outcomes and provide tips to DRL pilots to help enhance their season performance. Participants will compete for a chance to win an all-expenses-paid trip to the season finale of the DRL World Championship race and be crowned the champion on stage. Uh, I mean, it's great because Google Cloud Next is in two weeks, but uh, I do I do hope this expands to future AI ML projects <laughs> and uh, actual ability to tra- you know train a real drone. But uh, I like the idea. I mean, AI and ML must have come a really long way since Deep Racer, just because the amount of you know little RC cars that I saw run into things and and go horribly off course. Like I can't fly a drone with my intelligence, much less you know an AI intelligence. <laughs> so these this is going to be uh, probably spectacular to watch, but uh, uh, I'm not. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like old man screaming at cloud on this one a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit. Have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS, GCP, or Azure architect only to have them be poached at the 11th hour by a startup with a juice bar? Initiatives stalled because you're having trouble hiring? Well, I have a simple solution, Falcon Consulting. Falcon Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. Falcon certified AWS, GCP, and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud-native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the CloudPod sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul and they bring their own juice. Well, if you uh, were yelling at your PubSub data for the need for more rich metrics, uh, you previously had to find them buried like treasure. Useful to understand PubSub usage, but hard to dig around to find them in in an ideal scenario. But now, with the new out-of-the-box PubSub metric dashboards uh, that are accessible with one click from topics and subscription page in the Google Cloud Console, the dashboards now provide you more observability and context to help you build better solutions with the PubSub. Uh, And I did take a look at these earlier today, and they are pretty nice little uh, things. Uh, you know things like publish requests and average number of messages per batch are all very important if you're thinking about scaling out your PubSub infrastructure and not paying a ton of money for it. Uh, but the overall, uh, great way to see average message size, publish message count, average number of messages per batch, 
requests, throughput, etc. And all I have to say is uh, it's way better than Kinesis, so which gives you nothing <laughs> that you don't have to build yourself. So Google, thank you for this. I appreciate it. The Kinesis team should be ashamed. <laughs> yeah. It is, you know, you start touting queues as, you know, as an, you know, to your development teams as this huge, you know, advantage and adding that layer and the, touting all the advantages of, you know, having visibility into that traffic and then you move to a service that doesn't have any of it. It is sort of <laughs> defeating and deflating. So I'm glad they have this. Yeah. I mean, we've asked, I don't know how many times to Amazon, like, hey, please, please just build a Kinesis dashboard so I don't have to do it myself. And they're like, no, you have to build it yourself. And you're like, ugh, but the toil, the toil uh, hasn't worked yet. Yeah, it's not, thankfully, it's not just dashboards. I, it always frustrates me that the focus on, on the UI uh, for monitoring. I mean, I'm not quite sure how, how big the knock has to be for all the TV screens, for all the dashboards, for all the things that need to be monitored. But obviously, looking at graphs is, is something to do in a, if you're doing an investigation, but it's not it's not something that's useful for proactive monitoring. Mm-hmm. So I mean, the other half of this is, is not just the dashboards, but it's also the the, um, the alerts and the triggers and things that you can define based on the metrics, which are now more easily available. I agree. And you can and you can send all those alerts uh, to a different PubSub channel. <laughs> <laughs> you use that PubSub all the way down. That's great. <laughs> you can send those alerts all the way into Amazon since they're handling all of your instant resolution now. Done and done. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Perfect. Excellent. <laughs> All right. Well, Anthos now has the ability to manage your virtual machines on premise through Anthos. Uh, VM support is available on Anthos for bare metal, now known as Google Distributed Cloud Virtual, which is the rename they did, which was terrible. Customers can now run VMs alongside containers on a single unified Google Cloud connected platform in their data center or at the edge. With VM support, Anthos developers and operations teams can run VMs alongside containers on shared cloud native infrastructure. And VM support in Anthos lets you achieve consistent container and VM operations with Kubernetes-style declarative configuration and policy enforcement, self-service deployment, observability, and monitoring, all from the familiar Google Cloud Console, API, and command line interfaces. The Anthos VM runtime can be enabled on any Anthos on bare metal cluster at no additional charge. So even they didn't use the same name. <laughs> they, can't, they can't keep that uh, Google Cloud on-prem thing either. So there you go. Yeah, I missed half that announcement because I was still trying to parse that name. Like, what? That's not yeah. in the right order. Oh, oh, God, that is the new name. It's terrible. Yeah. Google Distributed Cloud Virtual. Does it? It doesn't even acronym anything cool. Like, what are they doing? Yeah, and it's. I can tell you, it's a being of a family of these products. <laughs> uh, so, like, to be like Google Distributed Cloud Edge, and then others that are coming later that I can't yeah. talk about. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a horrible naming of this family, and I don't know why they decided to do it. But everything under the Google Distributed brand is basically distributed to your data center where you can pay for it. Sure, but virtual cloud, I would like the cloud virtual thing. I'm my head's I'm completely wrapped around the axle on this. Yeah. I agree. And then uh, starting this month, Vertex AI matching engine and feature store will support real-time streaming ingestion as a preview feature with streaming engine for the matching engine, a full vector database for vector similarity search. Items and index are updated continuously and reflected in similarity search results immediately. With streaming ingestion for feature store, you can retrieve feature values with low latency for highly highly accurate predictions and extract real-time data sets for training. Sort of like SageMaker announcements. Like we talk about them, but we don't really know what they mean. But uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate it's there. Mm-hmm. Woo! Yay! Real time <laughs> feature extraction for the win. Yes, for the win. <laughs> 
All right. Well, uh, I didn't wow you with the last one. I'm, I'm really sorry about the next two Azure stories. <laughs> they're, they're not going to wow either one of you, I don't think. Uh, <laughs> so Tell me it's just not about network latency. <laughs> uh, I mean, it sort of is. <laughs> the Azure uh, Media Services is announcing the general availability of low latency live streaming, or LL-HLS. This offers glass-to-glass latency as low as four seconds with any player capable of supporting Apple's low latency HLS technology specification. With low latency in the four to seven second range, you can build a variety of interactive applications that allow you to engage seamlessly with audiences of scale. And the very first question you're all asking is like, well, what type of things would I want low latency streaming for? Which was my first question. And so they gave us uh, three reasons uh, retail live shopping. Uh, they really need to work on their audience. That's not us. We don't care about that. Uh, fitness and education instruction classes, uh, still wrong audience for me at least. Maybe maybe Jonathan works out. And then uh, social streaming and user generated live, where uh, where audiences can chat and reach react with emojis. Uh, and all I can think of is, man, those those Teams applause icons are much faster than four seconds. So clearly, still way behind Teams as a feature. There are several additional benefits of this, including latency of four to seven seconds, automatic live transcription in fifty languages, DRM support, and dynamic encryption. Player-friendly with Apple devices, no additional cost, and major improvements in latency over Dash when not using a LL-HLS playback, whatever that means. So there you go. Yeah, not for us. <laughs> I guess it is a challenge. I hadn't really thought about um, you know, the, the nature of interactive streams. I mean, we've all used Zoom and Teams and things recently, and um, latency or lag in those connections can make conversations really difficult. But I, I'd never really considered that, that live streaming events or live streaming interviews with people um, would suffer that same kind of lag uh, with, with interactive uh, um, content. That's quite mm-hmm. interesting. I wonder what Twitch's latency is, actually. Now, now, I, now I start thinking about this because I've seen some really good interactive things on Twitch that don't seem to have that, that issue. Yeah, that was the first thing that I thought of because I think Amazon did really invest in this a couple of years ago. I'm trying to think if it was before or post acquisition, but you know now they're all, a lot of their sales are driven through those interactive sort of sessions, and a lot of training is driven through that. So it's it's clearly you know growing in the space. Emojis and stuff, you know, are, are freely things, but there's you know there is some benefit to having this around. But you know, from a wind tunnel, I need a high latency streaming solution. So I don't know the slow latency thing. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just looking here. Uh, a quick Google search says that the average uh, Twitch stream delay is around 10 to 15 seconds. Wow. Which is pretty pretty long, actually. So. Yeah. Well, it didn't seem all that long until you know Azure did the four to seven. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you told me this before, I'd be like, that's amazingly fast for. <laughs> Now I have kind of one to compare it to. I'm like, yeah, it's a little slow. <laughs> no, like, what's this 10 second nonsense? Yeah, yeah, exactly. In my day, we had analog TV. It was zero latency. <laughs> uh, well, uh, there's now a GA of a feature we talked about on a previous show. The resizing of peered virtual networks on Azure is now generally available. This feature allows you to update the address space or resize for a peered virtual network with removing, without removing the peering first. And users often want to resize or update their IP addresses of their virtual networks as they grow their footprint in Azure. Users can now resize their virtual networks to meet their needs without downtime. Uh, I guess this would be a way to lower latency there for you, Ryan. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Just change the IP address, you know, range that I'm using, and see if see what happens. 
Yeah, what could, what could go wrong? <laughs> it seems a lot, honestly, because when you define a pair connection, you want to say, I want to pair for this specific range from from the you know from one end. If if you modify that range on the destination VPC, it's it's bizarre to me that it would it would update the thing in the in the in the first VPC automatically because that's no longer declarative at that point. It is kind of strange. I, I, this must be like, you know, through private peering and, and that layer of abstraction. Because if you think about trying to do this publicly, that would be a disaster. So I'm sure that this is, you know, specifically to those more back-end constructs, I hope. Yeah, I mean, what, what if or, I'm paired with two VPCs and then the, the one of the VPCs gets extended into the address space of the of the second VPC I'm paired with? Wait, is, that, is that possible? Is that going to break stuff? I would think don't so. A, don't ask a lot of questions of this future, Jonathan. This is this is designed for a world where there's you have one VPC pairing with one other VPC. Stop stop trying to complicate it. <laughs> All you got to do is start advertising, you know, Facebook's IP range. No big deal. Yeah, yeah. no problem. No, no problem. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I ran into a bunch of Oracle news that I thought we should talk about this week to wrap up the show. Uh, so first of all, they had their earnings, and uh, we don't typically talk about Oracle earnings too much. Um, but there was a quote in the earnings that uh, I found uh, ice chilling, you know, bone chilling a little bit. So first of all, uh, the, you should know they reported strong revenue growth in its first fiscal quarter, beating analyst estimates and bucking the recent trend of mixed financial results by enterprise software companies. Profit declined in large part because of the $1.7 billion invested in its cloud infrastructure, and total revenue rose 23% in constant currency terms to $11.45 billion, more than the $11.33 billion that the analysts expected. Cloud services and licenses support rose 14% to $8.42 billion, beating expectations of $8.23 billion. And this is where I got scared. There's a <laughs> quote from CEO Software Cats. We expect that organic growth in cloud business will accelerate substantially in the next quarter. It's not only that our growth rates are higher than hyperscale competitors, but our growth rates are increasing as we get bigger. And all I can read in that is our lawyers are getting to work. Mm. Yeah, when they, when they when they specifically call out license support and the, the rise on that, like, mm. <laughs> yeah, and organic growth, like yes, organic growth through my legal team. It's perfect growth. That's yeah. the type you want. <laughs> True. Uh, and then all of a sudden. You know, like, hey, you're you're using more licenses than you thought you were on Oracle. Hmm, well, here's some Oracle Cloud to throw into the mix as we, uh, you know, we sue you for lots of money. So yeah, so if you're uh, you have Oracle, you might uh, want to check your license counts before you get audited. Yeah, I guess in terms of total numbers of customers, it's it's easier to have a higher growth rate um, than than larger competitors percentage wise. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, I, I'm. Maybe the growth rates are increasing as they get bigger. Maybe that's just their their sales team, as you say, or or the the team lawyers are are getting more experienced or better at selling things, or maybe they have more services that people actually want to use. But this is sort of, if you zoom out to you know sensible timescales like ten years, do I think that their growth rates are increasing as they get bigger over ten years? I don't think so. Yeah, we'll see. Well, uh, they are putting that $1.7 billion to use uh, with opening of their new Spain OCI region. Located in Madrid, the region becomes the Oracle's 40th globally and its 7th in the EU, adding to existing regions such as London, Frankfurt, Amsterdam, Zurich, Marseille, Stockholm, and Milan. I think they've pretty much covered all of the European Union countries, uh, at least the big ones. The region will provide Spanish organizations with easier access to the company's full range of cloud services or... It allows our lawyers to get more OCI concessions in countries of origin. You guys are wild by Spain. I take it we're not going to Madrid. <laughs> uh, no, this is a 
you know, there's just a truck, you know, driving around in the back end for these things. We've decided for for Oracle, so like, you know, it's not super enticing that when they roll out a new region. Yeah, I mean, one point seven billion dollars in data center investments. A lot of trucks, though. It is a lot of trucks. Uh, well, the last announcement from Oracle, they've officially brought MySQL Heatwave to AWS, which it promised to do two years ago, reducing the need for extract transfer load uh, duplication between separate databases such as Amazon Aurora for transaction processing and Redshift for analytics. Oracle says their new offering is optimized for AWS and delivers superior economics over services from Amazon and others, and it cited a 4-terabyte TPC-H benchmark that it says showed MySQL Heatwave performing 7 times better than Redshift and 10 times better than Snowflake. It also said its ML extensions performed 25 times better than Redshift ML. MySQL Heatwave on AWS provides millisecond-level latencies for applications and a full-featured console that facilitates schema and data management and executes queries interactively. MySQL Autopilot, a component that uses machine learning techniques to automate many Heatwave features, is included with the console, and its features include automated provisioning, parallel loading, encoding, data placement, scheduling, query plan improvements, change propagation, and error handling. And there's a couple of quotes here that I thought were sort of humorous. So first one is a very classic uh, Oracle quote. Uh, a very large percentage of MySQL Heatwave customers are AWS users who are migrating off Aurora, said Nipin Agarwal, uh, uh, Senior Vice President of MySQL Database and Heatwave at Oracle. However, there are still some AWS customers who are not able to migrate to OCI. And this is a service where the data plane, control plane, and console are natively run on AWS. And we have taken the MySQL Heatwave code and optimized it for AWS infrastructure. Yeah, nice, nice, cute. And then he goes on to quote this <laughs> AWS customers that want to use the platform face several challenges, including exorbitant data egress fees charged by AWS, the high latency of accessing the database for applications running on AWS, and the need to integrate with other applications running in AWS. Wow, that was exorbitant data egress fees. That's those are them. are fighting words. Yeah, I mean the egress fees at Amazon haven't been small ever, so that's not new. It's it is pretty rough to get data out of Amazon, but yeah, it is it is pretty funny to 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 think about this quote in context of like, well, all of our customers are migrating off of Aurora. I'm like, it might be a little bit of selection bias. Agreed. Yeah, I wish it was less of a dig at, at AWS and and how and how this is much better than anything AWS could ever do, and and um, actually try to stand up for itself a little bit with decent metrics. Um, you know, I don't doubt that, that Heatwave is a, a really good product. I mean, Oracle make really good software. It's expensive, <laughs> but they are they are known for making very good data management systems. So it's yeah. probably worth a look. It, it probably is if you're a big MySQL shop and you're struggling to scale. Um, and if Aurora is not doing it for you, this is definitely something I would maybe maybe take a look at for sure. Yeah. Well, that's it for the news this week. Uh, we have the lightning round, and Jonathan, I, I, by my meanness, I put you first. I drew the the short straw. <laughs> AWS Transfer Family now supports multiple host keys and key types per server. Thank goodness. Now I can actually upgrade or change my transfer family by using the old key and the new keys and not have to now force all my users to accept a new key. Yeah. Very, very close to home, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> recent, recent changes were made that uh, keys were lost. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. AWS Cloud Development Kit, CDK, announces CDK construct tree views in the Amazon CloudFormation console. I can just see a tree can be constructed in front of me as my infrastructure 
goes through whatever weird process CloudFormation does. And like, I, can, I just see it like, you know, uh, Westworld style, just growing out of nothing. That's all I can think. Mm. Yeah, this is, you know, it, it's nice if there's like, you know, some graphical overlays and stuff, but this is just directory listing, right? It's not any fun. I mean, it could be fun, but it's not fun. Uh, introducing Visual Conversation Builder for Amazon Lex. Is that like if I have synesthesia, I can see colors now? <laughs> I mean, I was, uh, yeah, I guess so. I was more, in, I was more intrigued by the fact that you know I needed a visual builder to build my conversations, which are an auditory <laughs> thing. But yeah, yeah, you do you. <laughs> I got nothing for that. I do have an interesting question though, mm. which it's very, uh, it's it's good having conversational interactions with things. I wonder if there is or if there will ever be a very good um, sign language reading uh, service so you could actually interpret somebody signing and turn that into text and perhaps render a, uh, an avatar of some kind signing back to somebody who can't um, mm. hear. That would be pretty cool. That would be yeah. neat. I mean, the other thing is they could just read because obviously you don't need to hear to read, but I think there may be cases where that would be kind of interesting. I mean, definitely for making it more available, you know, live speech more available to people who, you know, when you can't do transcription. But although the, with Azure doing four seconds latency in transcription, I don't know that you necessarily need signing either. <laughs> um, so someone's going to win. I don't know. It's like learning a new language, right? Like trying to learn a new language. I'm constantly watching, you know, television and movies and other languages. If, you know, I had it signed to me, maybe I'd learn. Kind of neat. AppFlow now supports. Deleting records in Salesforce. Hey, I fixed the sales pipeline. <laughs> is that like a default <laughs> option? Like, is that you know? <laughs> cool. <laughs> AWS Systems Manager now supports patching newer versions of SUSE Linux Enterprise, Oracle Linux, and Red Hat Enterprise Linux. <laughs> I love the, the double line on that. Messed you up. That was great. Yeah, it totally did. <laughs> totally did. <laughs> Uh, also, another way for Oracle to get their licensing and increase their revenue by identifying that you're using Oracle Linux with the AWS Systems Manager, make sure you audit that in your Oracle audits as well. On the 1st of October, 2025, I decree that Log Analytics Alerts API and Azure Monitor will be retired. And I will now go to sleep for three years and forget about this until it all breaks on October 2nd, 2025. I hear that in the voice of like the first Terminator movie. You know, it's like yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking like a Back to the Future reference or something. You know, thirty years in the future, except we we're here already. Yeah, you still don't have flying oh, yeah. cars. No. <laughs> Finally, sign Amazon SNS messages with SHA two fifty six hashing for HTTP subscriptions. Pasha, pasha. <laughs> Close on a winner. I love it. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, no points though, because <laughs> Peter's not here. Yeah, but, uh, I know, it was sad because I, I worked hard on that one. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think you might have had a winner there, right at the end. It's yeah, right there at the end. Uh, all right. Well, things are coming up in the cloud world. Uh, October 11th through 13th is the Google Cloud Next conference, uh, followed by Oracle Cloud World October 17th through the 20th. The DevOps Enterprise Summit, October 18th through the 20th, which just released their new book, uh, Investments Unlimited, all about GRC and in the same vein as Phoenix Project and uh, whatever the oh, Unicorn Unlimited or Unicorn Project. Uh, this is the same idea. So you get a story 
about how to implement GRC properly in your DevOps process, uh, which is kind of interesting. I started it this weekend. It's uh, been enjoyable so far. And then KubeCon US, October 24th to 28th. So we will be busy here on the show. Uh, and so because of that, we've decided to take a vacation. <laughs> so we, uh, we will have an episode next week, and then we are taking off the week uh, and we will record an episode right after Google Cloud Next to drop shortly after that around the 18th of October. Uh, and so just to give you a heads up, if you're a regular listener and you're like, hey, wait a minute, I'm missing an episode, you're not. We took a short hiatus because we all saw October's be very busy, and as well as we already had some preordained vacation time on the books. So we're taking advantage of it and skipping a week during Oracle mm-hmm. Google Cloud Next to publish an episode. So be aware of that as we head into October. And I'll remind you next week, uh, in our next week's episode, but uh, yeah, no, don't check your feeds. Everything's okay. I promise. <laughs> We're fine. No news is good news. Yeah, not <laughs> just the vertical. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that is it for another fantastic week in the cloud. Thanks again, Jonathan and Ryan. See you later. Bye, everybody. And that is the week in cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. 